Let's jump into Jesus' teachings on the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12 today, if you want to read that in more detail as you have time. Now, the Sermon on the Mount happens at a time where Jesus has started to gain a little bit of a following. So this is no longer just the Twelve and His closest uh, friends and relatives that are following Him around. People have begun to believe in Him. And so it says in, in Matthew there that the disciples came to Him. And the usage of disciples here likely refers to more than just the Twelve. We don't know exactly how many are present at this time, but it's a much larger crowd than just the Twelve. In addition to that, we, know, we get the sense of this from the original language here, that Jesus is declaring something not just for an inner circle now, but He's declaring for all people that will believe and will follow and will enter into a relationship with Him. Now the Scriptures say, He opened His mouth and taught them, saying... Now, that might seem really obvious to you that you have to open your mouth if you want to say something or you want to teach something. But this saying actually has something else behind it, and it indicates this, that He's actually declaring something very important. He is speaking loudly, clearly, in range to, to, to reach out to everyone within range that can hear. So it's as if, let's say you were in a, cloud, a crowded room of people, you needed to get everyone's attention and make an announcement to everyone at the same time. That's the sense of he opened his mouth and taught them, saying in this case, he is making a declaration. What is he declaring? He's declaring the kingdom of God, and he's declaring his kingdom. He's not simply passing along information from another person to, to another person. He's not even, in this case, sharing and declaring things from a standpoint of another human being. He's actually declaring the kingdom of God as God. And that's very different. In essence, we're going to find out here as we go through these eight Beatitudes that He's telling us how to live, how to live with Him, how to live with each other, and what that means for us as individuals. And the word taught there is not just simply he was just teaching them in some generic or, or haphazard way. It really means, uh, it could be translated this way. This is what he used to teach them. And in that sense, what we're about to cover here in this teaching is things that are core teachings that he not only taught the twelve, but he had the twelve teach to others. And so these would have been teachings that were repeated. So if you want to understand the kingdom, if you want to understand how to follow Jesus well, this is, is what's being taught here. And so the idea is these are the teachings, the core teachings of how to live and how to follow Jesus. Now you might not be familiar with the term Beatitudes. We don't use that term in modern times. What it, it literally translates to is the blessings. But in a more practical sense, it's the idea of having an inner joy inside. And, or if you want to put it in even more practical terms, it's the attitudes of how you should be, if you like it that way. And so um, even though we don't use that terminology anymore, we still try to practice these things that we're about to discover that Jesus taught in many, in many ways in our lives. Sometimes we, some days we do these things better than others. Sometimes we think we've mastered them, and that can, can kind of be a little bit of a dangerous place to be if you think, well, I've got this whole Jesus thing figured out. But... I think for most of us, we're just striving to be more consistent and heartfelt in each of these things we're about to uncover from Jesus' teaching. The first thing that we come across, here let me just stop for a second and say this. These, don't, these are intentionally, we think, put in this order. Okay, So the first one we're going to come across in the Beatitudes is, is intentional and foundational and first. 
and then the next thing follows and so on and so on. You'll see that as we go. The first thing that Jesus says in the Beatitudes is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, Barclay says the blessed part here, which is going to be repeated in each one, is the joy which has, secret, it has its secret within itself. What does that mean? It's the joy which is serene, it's untouchable, and self-contained. It's that kind of joy which is completely independent of your circumstances outside of you. In other words, it's not just, I'm joyful when everything's going well. It's an inner joy that God gives by being in relationship with Him that is not influenced and overwhelmed by your circumstances as those change. Poor in spirit. What does that mean? Now, this is not an indication of someone who's without value or insignificant as they might, the poor might have been treated back then or the poor might be treated now. It's more rightly understood as someone who confesses their sin and rebelliousness towards God. In other words, we can put it in more succinct terms, someone who recognizes that they are spiritually bankrupt. Not economically bankrupt, but spiritually bankrupt. And the Greek word there is, is referring to people who are truly poor, right? Not the working poor who are just living paycheck to paycheck, wondering whether they can keep their lights on. The word poor here actually means someone who has absolutely nothing to the, in their possession, nothing to offer back. And so in essence, it's this, the poor in spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's a declaration of the need to be forgiven without the ability to make it so. Nothing within your status, nothing within your possession, nothing within your heritage or your history that would make your status right before God. So recognizing that I have a debt before God that I am unable to pay. And he goes on to say, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who recognize that poverty, that spiritual bankruptcy, are in the place to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, they are described as owners of nothing and yet owners of all things. I love that. Owners of nothing and yet owners of all, all things. And so in one fell swoop, Jesus has laid bare status completely, right? He has leveled the playing field for all people. Romans, in, in the book of Romans, it says all have, fallen, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so, and, and it ties back into this to say that, hey, money, position, if you like, degrees, religion even, are insufficient to receive the forgiveness or manufacture and bring about the forgiveness, or if you like it, to pay the spiritual debt to make you right before God. So that's the first thing. You must recognize your need for a Savior, your need for forgiveness. And then comes the second. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, this is the strongest type of mourning. In our lives, we mourn many losses. We don't always recognize it that way. Some people have talked about during the pandemic that we're mourning loss of interaction. We're mourning uh, a loss of a job. We're mourning different things. But this is referring more to the deep, heartfelt mourning is as if you've lost a loved one. Okay, so it's much deeper than that. So what's being inferred here is this. This type of mourning is mourning over our, our, our spiritual condition, mourning over our sin, right? Mourning over our, our disconnect from God, our rejection or rebelliousness against God. And in that sense, a casual regret over sin is not enough, right? This is not the type of mourning, I lost my pet, although that's a big loss in a family. This is a very deep, hurtful type mourning. Because if we mourn our sin in that way, it, it will begin to, we'll begin to understand it and deeply feel it. And also we'll repent and flee from it, 
and in essence towards forgiveness. This morning is what Paul refers to as godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, that produces repentance to salvation. So the first two Beatitudes, one is recognizing your spiritual debt before God, mourning over it, deeply feeling the regret over it, but not, here's the great thing about following God in that, is the back end of that second beatitude is, you shall be comforted, for they shall be comforted. God's not saying, feel ashamed about it, and I'm going to trap you in that. Feel condemned about it, because that's what I want you to feel. He's saying, no, I want you to truly mourn over it, let it die, let it go, and let's move away from it and come towards me. And if you do, I'm going to comfort you. I'm not going to reject you. I'm not going to make you feel bad for the rest of your life about things that you regret in your life. You promised comfort through this teaching as well. And so uh, one person put it this way. I love it. It says, God allows this grief into our lives as a path, not a destination. So it's not a place that you and I are going to be confined to but it opens a door, it opens a way out into forgiveness. And if you really think about it, when you've had to share in your life sorrow or pain with someone, something deeply felt, um, it actually creates a deeper bond between two people when they share that experience together. Now that's not God bringing mourning to bear on you, but the idea that you can share in His sorrow and His pain and therefore have a deepening relationship with the God of the universe is a really powerful and radical thing to think about in that way. Thirdly, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. A meek person in this case is not someone who's weak or without strength. Rather, it's someone who probably has influence or power, but restrains their use of it. Okay? They're not easily provoked. They do not seek revenge, even when it's in their power to bring it to bear on somebody. To be meek means to show willingness to submit and work under proper authority. It also shows a willingness to disregard one's own rights and privileges when necessary. You see, we are meek before God in that we submit to His will and conform to His Word. We are meek before others in that we are strong, yet also humble, gentle, patient, and long-suffering with one another. We choose those things. So the first two look inwardly. The third one begins, Jesus begins to cause us to look outwardly. And He says, you will inherit the earth. You know, being meek, the idea of, of reducing your, your status or your power or your influence a little bit for the sake of others, it kind of goes against the culture and the grain of the day, if you will. We live in a time where it's really all about us and it's really about survival of the fittest. And, and, and you're being asked to not strive for that in essence, though, what happens then is you're choosing, when you choose to be meek, it means that we trust God to be our provider. It means that he, we trust God to be the protector of our cause and the needs and the hopes and the dreams and the purposes that we have. Fourthly, Jesus says, blessed are those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled who hunger and thirst. Now this describes an intense hunger. It's not going to be satisfied by a snack or a Snickers bar, if you will, if you've seen those commercials. Not by a few moments even here on earth, or, but in reality by eternity. It's this, um, we, we might struggle with this idea a little bit. We live in the West. We live in the most proper, prosperous country the world's ever known. 
Are there people that truly hunger and thirst from day to day? Absolutely. We have the, we have the poor among us. We will always have the poor among us. And so that's true. But the vast majority of us don't know what it's like in this. We, we are the 1% of the world. And we don't know what hunger and thirst really means. And so this is a deep hunger and thirst that he's referring to. And so you might struggle with that idea because of comfort a little bit. But what are we hunger and thirsting for? He says righteousness. Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, if we hunger and thirst after righteousness, um, we don't look after, we don't hunger and thirst after our own political party, maybe getting into power. How timely is that? We, um, uh, we don't hunger and thirst. We, we rather hunger and thirst after righteousness in the sense that we want righteousness to be done in our land instead, right? Not winning, in other words. He, he who hungers and thirsts does not hunger and thirst for his own opinions to come to the front, to win an argument on social media, or even for our own church denomination to increase in numbers and influence, but rather desire that righteousness in general may come to the front in all our relationships in every aspect of our society and our lives. And Jesus promises that if you hunger and thirst for that, you shall be feel, filled. Jesus promises to fill the hungry. And uh, it's a strange kind of filling, right? It's a filling up of right now, but also satisfying us in the moment, but keeping us longing for more in our relationship with God as we go. It's, if we, it's like see, if we seek the holy, the righteous, and the good, we will not lack in our own lives. And as a result, life will be better around us. And we're moving through these pretty quick because there's, there's, we have a short time to do this and we have eight of them. So I want to encourage you once again, please go back and read this in a greater context. Read the whole chapter, chapter 5, and uh, take your time with it. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now at this point, I think this is ordered again in the right place because it's giving the indication here that we've already we've received mercy and he's speaking to us in that context. What are you doing with the mercy that you have already been given? He says, because we've been shown mercy and been emptied of our pride and sin to spiritual poverty, to be brought to a state of mourning over it, to receive grace, to be gentle, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is for those who've already received mercy. And as a result, we'll show mercy to the weak and the poor. We'll, uh, we'll look for those who mourn and weep. We'll be forgiving and restoring in our relationships. We'll have compassion and care for the souls of all people, not just those who are like us. And so Jesus is really pushing us out of the nest, so to speak, really challenging us to look at people around us and the world we live in, in our country, in our society, in every aspect of life in a radically different way. And he says, if you do that, you shall obtain mercy. In essence, if we want mercy from God or if we want mercy from others, uh, we would do well to give mercy willfully. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And pure in heart, it indicates the idea of straightness, of uh, honesty, of clarity. This can show as one who is morally pure, but it also as one whose heart is sincere and undivided. Have you ever had that person in your life that you just thought, man, they just have a pure heart. They just have a good heart. They're the same always. You know they're going to be honest and straightforward with you. Those are the kind of people we're referring to here as being pure in heart. And the neat thing is this. The amazing thing is this. For they shall see God. If we are 
striving to be and practicing being pure in heart, Jesus promises we shall see him. We'll have greater intimacy with God as a reward because in reality, if we practice being pure in heart, we're becoming closer to the nature of God as we live as well. And certainly, you know, this is far better than the idea of, of, oh, I'm mourning over my sin and God is shaming me and trapping me in that. He's actually calling us and beckoning us into a relationship with Him and a fullness and an intimacy with Him. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called, it says in this translation, sons of God. You could enter children of God to, to be all mankind. This is uh, when we share His passion and peace for reconciliation, the breaking down of walls between people. Uh, Spurgeon, who I've been referencing here a couple of times, he says it's like the idea of put it, being between two people who are arguing, and maybe you're taking verbal and maybe even physical blows from, from two sides, but you're in the middle trying to make peace between them. It could also apply to one of us being in an argument or a conflict with one another, and we're one of the people on either side, but we choose to put ourselves in the middle. We choose to seek peace. We choose to seek reconciliation and forgiveness in there. But in that process, you recognize, I'm going to have to take some blows to get to that point. It's also uh, reflective of where God stood when we were in conflict because of our sin with God Himself. He says, no, I'm going to enter into the middle. Now, at the time that Jesus is preaching this sermon, probably they don't understand it fully at this point, but they will very soon, that Jesus is actually interjecting himself in the middle to be the ultimate peacemaker for all people of all time. And then the last one says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, now, Jesus is making a, a distinct point here. This is not the idea of like being persecuted for doing stupid things or being really fanatical about your religion and that kind of thing. He says in here, for my sake, for righteousness sake. So if you're standing up for God, if you're standing with God, if you will, you can expect, he says, to, to have things come, people come against you. It's going to happen. The interesting thing here, here, and it fits here, it fits it well with what we're going through in our culture today, is he brings into it insults and spoken malice as also being forms of persecution towards you and things that he says, if you're going to live out these beatitudes, you should expect these things. You should expect the opposition to follow. But he also says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. And the original language of that is the idea of someone leaping for joy when you're being persecuted because you're on the right path because you're living in such a way as you're in tight close intimate relationship with the God of the universe you're moving from from a spiritual debt to forgiveness to right relationship you're moving from a place of of seeking things for yourself to being outwardly looking and helping and being merciful towards others and he says your reward is in heaven as a result so I want to wrap it up this way. The call to be poor in spirit is placed first for a reason. It's because it puts all the following commands into perspective. So as you go back and read this, and I really want to challenge you to do that this week, go back and read the entire passage and section and chapters together. What we realize is this. These things cannot be fulfilled by one's own strength, but by only recognizing your spiritual bankruptcy to start with and God's power to bring forgiveness to bear on that. 
Because the hard reality is this, no one mourns until they're poor in spirit. No one is meek towards others until they have a humble view of themselves. Uh, if you don't sense your own need in poverty, you will never in hunger and thirst after righteousness for everyone. And if you have too high a view of yourself, you'll find it difficult to be merciful to others. These things are all connected. Here's even a harder question. If no one speaks against you for having lived this way, have you really lived this way? Or have you lived this way consistently? That's a challenge to myself. I know I'll fully confess that, that I don't always live this way. But the, this is what Jesus is challenging us. This is how He's challenging us to live. This is how He's challenging us to follow. This is how He's challenging us to be in relationship with Him. These are the core teachings. This is what He always taught them. And this is what He's teaching us today. So here's my challenge to you this week. As you go about your week, I'm not asking you to take all eight of these and examine them and break them apart in your own life. Pick one. Pick one and, and, and really spend some time in prayer and self-examination and see if that's an area you need to work on. You don't have to be perfect at all of these, but this is what is required and this is what Jesus Himself asks of each of us if we choose to believe in Him, if we choose to follow Him, and if we choose to be in a relationship with Him and with each other. It's an incredibly challenging teaching. Stay with us this, this semester because it's going to keep going. Not just the, we're, This is the end of the Beatitudes part, but you're going to be really challenged every week. Love you guys. Can't wait to see your faces again. Praying for each of you every day. We love you, and uh, we'll see you soon. God bless you guys.